Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians? This morning we start our next journey together as a church family as we begin to focus corporately on Paul's letter to the Philippians. In just a moment, I'll have us read the first 11 verses of chapter 1, but actually that will be the text that we'll start in together next week. So we'll get the chance to hear it this morning and again next week. Uh, This morning, we're going to start by working together to gain a better understanding of the situation that Paul's writing this letter into. It's just a fact that the more... uh, we are more prone to notice and pick up the truths that we'll find in this letter if we are, to a certain extent, already expecting them before we get there. And so, essentially, our task is a very simple one this morning. I want to put before you two things here as we begin to introduce this letter. First, I want us to simply hear the story itself of Paul and this Philippian church. So we'll take some time to do that as we begin. Uh, And then secondly, we'll work this morning to take note of two large themes in particular that are going to confront us over the next weeks and months. We look at it now, even now, so that even from this first week, we can start together to pray for God to change us uh, and to grow us in these very ways. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's good to begin by hearing this, his introduction in his letter, because you can tell, I think, right away, Uh, that there's something of an unusual degree of closeness here in this particular greeting, in this letter. It makes fairly obvious to us that there is some history here 
between this man writing this letter to this group of Christians. And that's very much the case. So let's begin there this morning. Let me simply tell you the story of Paul and the Philippians. And I want us to go all the way from the way that he first meets this group of people all the way to his writing of the letter itself, which he will be writing from a cell in prison. Paul is the one who founded this church in Philippi. He did that on his second missionary journey. You may be aware that Paul made three trips uh, to a, a large geographic extent. We call those his first, second, and third missionary journeys. He founded this church in the midst of his second missionary journey uh, in the early 50s AD. We read about this in Acts chapter 16. Would you for just a moment turn over there to Acts 16? And you can follow along with me. I'll read the first 12 verses. And uh, depending on what kind of a person you are, you might enjoy uh, hearing this as you follow it on the bulletin insert. We have in there a map of his second missionary journey. You'll see a number of the cities uh, named that we read here. This will begin with uh, a mention of Derby and Lystra. Those are toward the right, the top right uh, of uh, that path that he is going to take. That's where this will begin. Acts 16, starting at verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And you notice at that point, Paul is continuing on his journey here, uh, in large part through some of the same places that he went in his first missionary journey. But then things begin to change. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. You see those on the map, not cities, but regions. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. We'll stop there. My friends, realize that you have just heard of the first day when the gospel came to the shores of Europe. It is a, an incredible thing for us to look back on this from our own vantage point. I mean, we know our history. We know that 
all the way down to the level of society itself, so much of that entire continent is going to be pervasively Christianized. And what's more, we've lived to see so much of that continent at that same societal level come to throw off that Christianity. I mean, what a ride the continent of Europe has had in this way, and what victory from God. What salvation has come to men, women, and children in every one of the nations of that continent. Here we read of the day when that saving gospel stepped into Europe for the first time. And all that we hear is concerning his, their arrival in Philippi, we just hear that they stayed there, it says, some days. Uh, this is Silas, Timothy, Luke, and Paul. We don't know what some days means exactly, but it's enough time for a number of things to happen. It's enough time for close relationships to be built as they bring the gospel first to Lydia and to a group of of prominent women there in Philippi, and then the gospel spreads and a community is built. It's enough time for Paul and Silas to get violently beaten by a mob and put into jail and then miraculously rescued from jail, uh, used to convert the jailer himself and his family. Maybe you remember some of these accounts and acts. All that happens in their time in Philippi before they then move on. Uh, and from there, they pass through a couple of towns and they arrive at Thessalonica. And they will then spend three weeks there, three very hard weeks. Uh, in Thessalonica, they come into, for the first time that we're told of, uh, after Philippi, they come into some, some deep need, physically, financially, and already there. Notice, this, they're just the very next step after they have left this Philippian community and established that church. It's only right then that they face that need, and already there, the Philippians begin to send him help as they hear of him having need. We had that described to us in Philippians 4, 15 and 16, as the first time when they began to support Paul and his ministry financially and to meet his needs, even from afar. That winds up being the first of an incredible pattern that we see from this Philippian congregation. Uh, Paul goes from there then to Berea, and then to the city of Athens, and then he spends 18 months in Corinth. And there again, Paul is sent from this Philippian church a financial gift, according to 2 Corinthians 11.9. So he continues on from them, spreading the gospel, starting churches, and they somehow manage to keep track of him, his location, his need, and they're sending him help as they can. Well, somewhere around a year later then, Paul has returned to Jerusalem, and he begins another trip. And we call that his third missionary journey. A major purpose of that third journey was for him to go back through to the churches he had established in order to raise funds for the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, who has begun to suffer tremendously. It's important to understand, and even as we're preparing to go through Philippians, this is important to understand, that his raising money in the Gentile churches for the Jewish church in Jerusalem it was certainly a very helpful, practical thing for him to do, but it was much more than a practical thing. 
for him to go around collecting this. It had theological significance and church unity significance as well. Because by that point, as he's starting his third missionary journey, a controversy in Jewish circles has grown quite severe uh, concerning Paul's message that Gentile Christians did not need to submit to Jewish law in order to honor God in their lives. This is a point of conflict from the beginning, but by that time, already a number of Jews have begun to take it upon themselves to travel outside of the region of Judea to these other uh, Gentile churches to correct this error and inform them of what they should be doing. So Paul, as he's going around here, gathering from the Gentile churches to give to the Jewish church is going to serve several purposes. It's going to show love from those Gentile churches toward the Jewish Christian churches. It's also going to show, isn't it, that Paul has not forgotten his Jewish brothers. He still cares deeply for them and for their needs. And as he does this, though, what we also find is that he is bringing warning again to these churches concerning that particular error of the Judaizers. So it's amid that third journey then that Paul, as he's retracing his steps, he returns to visit the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is that large region up there in the top left where you see the city of Philippi. Um, at that point, as he gets there, the churches there in Macedonia are having their own intense struggles with poverty. They are not doing well themselves economically. And yet when he gets there and he, they hear of the need in Jerusalem, even though he has committed to not asking them to help because they are in such desperate straits themselves, when they learn of the need in Jerusalem, they impose upon Paul. They insist on contributing to this collection that he's going around the world gathering. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 8. Just listen to this. He says to the church in Corinth, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So this is an amazing thing that we see again from the church in Philippi in particular. So this is the third missionary journey. It's been a year after completing the second one. Paul's back among them then. He's encouraging them. Again, they send him off with a very generous offering, only this time not for him, but to support the suffering church in Jerusalem. Well, Paul continues then on his path. And when he finishes that journey, he arrives back in Jerusalem, and he is greeted by a particular group of Jews. And by greeted, I mean they tried to beat him to death. And in fact, they would have succeeded, it seems, from the description. Only the Romans show up in time to stop the beating and take him into custody to interrogate him and to figure out what in the world this man has done that has created this extreme and violent reaction. That's all recorded for us in Acts chapter 21. Paul winds up there being interviewed by a number of people, and the result is that he sits then in prison 
in the town of Caesarea for two years. So we're just thinking of the timeline here, right? It was about a year after he founded the church in Philippi that he began his third missionary journey. He goes through that. He's now arrested. Two more years go by. At the end of that, then, he appeals at last to Caesar. And so he is sent to Rome. He sets sail for Rome. We're fairly confident in around the year 59 or 60 A.D. So this gives you a sense of how much time has passed now. At this point, it's been about 10 years since he first led the Philippian church, those members, to Christ and established the church there. He gets to Rome. He's in prison. He receives yet another, and it sounds like a large financial gift from the church in Philippi. And it's at that point, then, that he sits down and he writes this letter to them. Now, this is the picture that we have of, uh, especially from Paul's point of view, but let's add to that a number of things that have been happening in Philippi in the meantime. Based on what Paul is going to write to them, we can discern a number of things, because he's clearly writing to them in response to the things he's learned from their man who brought their, this latest financial gift to him there in Rome. That man's name is Epaphroditus. He's the one who brought this gift to him. He gets there, he greets Paul, and he has caught him up on what's been going on in the church in Philippi. And what Paul has learned from him results in the subjects that are addressed by him in this letter. What kinds of things is Paul going to speak to as he writes to them? And what does it tell us about the state of things as Epaphroditus has recounted it? To him. Here's a very broad list of some of the subjects he's going to bring up. Uh, proper conduct amid opposition, chapter 1, 27 to 30. Disunity and self-centeredness, 2, 1 to 4. Prohibitions against grumbling, 2, 14. Urgings to rejoice, Urgings to find joy and to rejoice in their circumstances, 2.18, and then again in chapter 3. A whole chapter, seemingly, chapter 3, warning them against false teaching of a particular kind. And in chapter 4, a call to get along with each other in the church. Now, not only are things like that going on that he needs to address, but what's more... After they sent Epaphroditus with this gift to go to Rome and to give it to Paul, on the way there, Epaphroditus got sick, and he nearly died. And he knows something. He knows, Epaphroditus knows, that they learned of his illness, but they don't yet know whether he has recovered or not. So for however long this has taken, they've been sitting back there wondering if this gift has even reached Paul, and they've been sitting there wondering if their dear friend Epaphroditus has survived or not. They've been living in this moment of nervousness and uncertainty, even as all of these other difficulties are going on. And Paul learns about all of this. How is he going to encourage this group of fellow believers who he is so close to personally, who has done so much for him over such a long period of time, and so much for the gospel, who themselves are suffering in a number of ways so that they need 
not just encouragement, but also instruction, how should he respond to this from afar? Well, what God leads Paul to do is to sit down and write what we now call the book of Philippians. And given the glimpses that we just took into the letter, we are not surprised to find in Philippians what one author described like this as, quote, a message full of comfort and joy, rebuke and encouragement, doctrine and exhortation. My friends, this is what we have in store for us here in the months to come. And for the rest of our time this morning, I, I want to preview for us what I suspect will be two of the more repetitive ideas that God is going to confront us with in love. Those ideas are, number one, the pursuit of joy, and number two, the pursuit of right thinking. The pursuit of joy and the pursuit of right thinking. Let's think about each of those for just a moment as we start this. Joy, of course, comes up often in the New Testament. Paul mentions it. He encourages it throughout his writings, whether you're talking about the verb to rejoice or the noun itself of joy. This comes up in Paul quite a bit. And yet there is one place in the New Testament in which their uses spike for Paul. If you take all the letters of Paul and you pull out the book of Philippians, everywhere else, those two words average an appearance 0.5 times per chapter. But in Philippians, those two words average 3.5 times per chapter. Just in terms of statistics, you get a sense of something unique happening in this book on that topic. The pursuit of joy. Now, as for a pursuit of right thinking, we find, in fact, something very similar. There's a particular verb, phroneo, that means to think, or sometimes to consider. Uh, it, it seems to be the most common verb for them to use when talking about the activity of thinking. And across most of his letters, and I mean 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. You take all of those together in a group. Paul uses that verb four times total. The only two letters that I didn't just include were the letters to the Romans and to the Philippians. So you have four times used across all of the other letters. In the book of Romans, that verb is used nine times on its own. And in the book of Philippians, it appears ten times. Disproportionately dealt with our thinking in a pretty stark way in Romans and Philippians, and Philippians the most. And again, that's just thinking of that one particular verb. In the book of Philippians, he'll use three other synonyms as well that mean roughly the same thing and are translated consider or notice something, give your attention to. Those will appear seven more times in the book of Philippians. I say all of this simply to make the point that the task of thinking is focused on in Philippians and to a greatly disproportionate degree compared to his other letters. And I want us to consider this morning how those... I want us to think about those two points of emphasis, a pursuit of joy and a pursuit of right thinking. Before we even start into chapter 1, 
the next time we're here, because I want us to start considering how these two ideas might actually be one idea. How it might actually not be a coincidence that the two that those two concepts both find their point of greatest New Testament emphasis in the same letter. That should not be a surprise to us. Do we not expect, given the nature of reality as it has been described for us in God's Word, do we not expect that our fight for joy and our fight for right thinking, for thinking that accords with the truth of the gospel, would we not expect those to be the same fight? The world around us thinks in a way that cannot reach beyond this world. The New Testament describes the wisdom of this world as worldly by by its nature. It, It cannot affirm what Scripture teaches about us, for example, that we are more than flesh and bones, more than synapse firings in the brain that we are, in fact, body-spirit composites as creatures. And so, for the most part, the fight for joy, when you think of the world around us, boils down to efforts to change our worldly circumstances. My friends, this difference, and that is a difference, between us and the world around us, it's something for us to consider carefully because we're quite able to fall into worldly ways of thinking. When joy becomes elusive in your life, as it does for us all, where do your eyes go to address it? Now, in comparing, as I'm about to do, something with the notion of circumstances and changing circumstances, I do want to be clear that there are so many ways, more than ever before, in which we have the ability to change and adjust our circumstances. And that is a real blessing that God has given Our faith does not at all call us to simply sit in painful or sorrowful circumstances. We are free to look to try to improve uh, our situations as we are able lawfully to do. But we know, don't we, that the fact is, I mean, it's twofold. A, plenty of times we come into discouraging circumstances that we can't lawfully change. And B, Even when we do change our circumstances, we find out pretty quickly that changes in circumstance are never where lasting joy will be found. It's just not. Lasting joy always requires a transformation of our minds. We have to be made by God's Spirit to think in new and different ways. I mean, to see the world and to see ourselves from an entirely new and different perspective. And that's maybe a good way to describe what's meant by the word sanctification. Jesus prays for his people, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is by the truth of God's word that he grows us, that he sanctifies us. This is something that Paul writes about in two different places, two different books in the New Testament, in fact. And he basically says the Very same thing in both of them. Now, here is a pop quiz question to see who has been paying attention or who hasn't. Based on what we just said about where Paul emphasizes right thinking, are you ready for your question? Which two books do you think we're about to reference? 
If you said Philippians and Romans, congratulations, you would be correct, and it would be what we would have expected. Listen to what he says in these two. You're welcome to turn here, or you can just listen, because we won't spend much time in each. But the first comes from what we've just read, in fact, this morning. Philippians 1.10, he'll say this. He prays for them, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. Literally, so that you may, through testing, come to discern and approve the excellent things. Can't wait for us to get there in our study. The, the word has to do with an ability to evaluate something, but in two different ways. If, we, if we're doing that, we're discerning good from bad, but we're also discerning good from best. See what the difference might be in those ways. We're gaining the ability to see and to prioritize. He says the same thing again in Romans 12, too, and with the same word. There he says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What produces this ability? To know good from best, to know good from bad. What, the, what produces it? A transformation of the mind is what produces it. With that, we gain the ability more and more to do this, but we gain that ability because we're gaining the ability to perceive things as they really are. Our eyes are being opened so that we can do this. Now, it's an interesting thing. I was thinking about that this week perceiving things as they really are. I mean, that may or may not lead someone positively toward joy, depending on what actually is going on in reality, right? If I'm coming to perceive reality better and better, and it turns out that there is no one in the driver's seat of the universe, everything is cosmic accident, value and meaning are just words we've made up to try to feel better about ourselves, well, if that's the case, then coming to perceive things as they really are is not going to lead me to joy. This is what nihilism is. This is, it leads us to despair and to suicide. Its proper end is that way, if that's the way reality actually is. But Paul is describing to us a work that God is doing, whereby our minds are renewed, and the result is that we come to be able, as he puts it in Romans 12, we come to be able to discern the will of God. Think about that. We come to realize that God is in the driver's seat. And what's more, that his will is wrapped up in everything that he says is good and acceptable and perfect. And guess what? That God is working every inch of my circumstances according to the counsel of that will. It doesn't mean that everything going on in my life at this moment is good and acceptable and perfect. God has providentially reached down into the mess of human history and he's working in the midst of our sin and the fallen state of his creation according to his perfect plan. We understand that. What, what it certainly does mean is that there is a plan that is going on and it is very good. 
And it is coming to fruition. And the more I come to understand that, to actually discern it, and to recognize that it's the case, the more confidence I can live my life with, the more I will be able to rejoice and to do so in any circumstance, as Paul will go on to describe. Sometimes we can find examples of things in unexpected places. It occurred to me this week that some games provide a very good example of this. I'm thinking maybe of of games that involve making plans. At our house, we're a game-playing household. We like playing chess at our house. It's not uncommon at all when you're playing chess to be in a game and to be really happy where things are and maybe even to see certain victory. Three moves ahead, I'm going to win, and there's nothing that can happen to change it now. To be in that place, and for, but for, for the board to look in a way that someone could walk by and glance over and go, man, you're in bad shape. And you say, well, no, I'm not in bad shape, actually. I'm in very good shape, as a matter of fact. I can see how you would think that. But that's just because you can't see what I can see. You can't see the plan that is being played out. But I do see it because I know what I'm doing. Now, if if you are a knight on that board, your your point of view is, is quite limited, isn't it? All you know is that you have now, excuse me, you have now moved backwards twice. You've seen other pieces get knocked off the board. You might be struggling in a moment of discouragement. And what do you need in that moment as that knight at the back of the board if you're to be able to pursue joy in that moment from all the way back there? What do you need? What you need is perspective. You need to understand some things. You need to understand that not only are there things going on bigger than what you can see and bigger than your own particular role, but if additionally you could be made to understand that victory is imminent and that your own circumstances are actually contributing to that imminent victory, well then, no matter the momentary present circumstance, you will see that there is reason to rejoice. That doesn't mean you'll suddenly find your particular circumstance lonely at the back of the board, pleasant right then. doesn't even mean that you won't get knocked off the board before the game is finished. But you will know things such that you will have good reason to rejoice. Paul is going to encourage the Philippians' joy by sharpening their thinking about what's really going on. And my friends, such is the power of the Spirit of God attending the Word of God that 2,000 years after it has been written, Paul is going to do the same thing for us in this room. He will sharpen our thinking about a lot of things. About God's commitment to our everlasting good 
chapter 1. He'll sharpen our thinking in chapter 1 about life and death and what they are, about how they're different from each other and about what they have in common. He'll sharpen our thinking in chapter 2 about what it looks like to have a proper estimation of ourselves, about how it is that we should expect sanctification to work in this life, how he actually grows us on a given Tuesday or in a particular season of our 30s or our 70s or our teens, how he actually works to grow us in Christ-likeness in this life. And then in the very next breath, in the next chapter, he'll sharpen our thinking about exactly how useless our own works are and our own efforts are when it comes to our salvation, that we are utterly dependent upon the grace and mercy of God in Christ if we are to be rescued from sin. And he'll give us himself as an example of that. Then he'll sharpen our thinking in chapter 4 with a number of direct statements about thinking. What should we spend time thinking about? And here's a question that we need to be asking today. Is it important that we be people who spend deliberate time thinking? And why? These are such important places for us to be sharpened. And my friends, this morning allows me to exhort you, before we even begin, to reckon with your own need to grow in those very areas. If it's true, Reload there, excuse me. If it is true that what we've said this morning, that your pursuit of joy in your life is directly tied to your own ability to think rightly about these things, then only a fool would waste opportunities for such sharpening. Friends, this is an opportunity that God is providing to his people. You know that a dull knife is not really a problem for anybody so long as it's closed away in the drawer. You don't think about the fact of its dullness. But the problem is that inevitably, times come in which you need a knife. Maybe to process that deer so that your family can eat, or to fight off an intruder to save the lives of the household. And when you suddenly need a sharp knife and you pull it out and find it dull, you are in trouble. God would sharpen our knives over the next several months. if we would not resist it. Are you prepared to prioritize the study of God's word in your life and in the life of your family as we enter into it? There's not a believer in this room that doesn't go through times of great struggle when joy feels elusive. That's an experience that is common to us. Everyone you see as you look around the room. I have no doubt, in fact, I know that there are many here this morning who are in just such a season as I'm talking to you. I mean, you have had need of a knife, and in pulling it out, you have found it in need of sharpening. It's not even a criticism. It's just a constant experience that we have, isn't it? We steadily need to be sharpened in our thinking, to be reminded of the, the truth of the matter a perspective that is true, that is bigger than our own perspective. And in your fight for joy, 
what's happening in those moments is that needs are being revealed to you. You have needs as you go through those experiences and those seasons. And my friends, here's what you find this morning. You know it. If you're in Christ, you know it to be true. But he graciously reminds you again, your God has not been blind to those needs that you have right now and to the suffering that's come as a result of them. And just one of the many, surely many, things he plans to do for you as his child is to lead you in the coming months through a careful study of this book that you might see rightly, think rightly, and so be able to pursue joy in this season. Do you know this experience? I've felt this way sometimes, if I'm being honest. There are some things that are said in Scripture that we find beautiful at the very same time that we hope it will never become relevant to us personally. One of those that I think of is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says that God comforts us. God comforts us in our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort others with that same comfort. It's beautiful. We really don't want it to apply to us because that would mean that we have to suffer and then be comforted and then be equipped to comfort others. My friends, roughly 2,000 years ago, God ordained certain trials and sufferings for a church family in Macedonia. And then he comforted them with this letter. And by that comfort, we now get to be comforted. I'll close this morning with one description. It's really a summary of what we have seen this morning. The Philippians were facing great adversity had lost their sense of Christian joy and were tempted to abandon their struggle. Accordingly, this letter places great weight on the need to stand fast and persevere. It is remarkable that this note of perseverance has not played a more significant role in the interpretation of Philippians. Most readers tend to view the Philippian church in the best possible light, but the text makes clear that these believers were experiencing severe spiritual problems. Many of them apparently had lost confidence in their ability to maintain their Christian confession. Paul encourages them to stand fast and contend, to run their race, to run their race without looking back, to take seriously their awesome responsibility of working out their salvation. End quote. My friends, in these very ways, then, we prepare to be encouraged by our Heavenly Father this year. And I am greatly looking forward to it. Would you pray with me? Father, we can see in what you have shown us this morning, we can see in this historical look back at the hand you have had upon your people in a particular city, in a particular season of great struggling and suffering. And the way that that hand, that same hand in that same way, now extends to us, to hold on to us, to guide us, 
to point us in the right way that we would think, that we would worship, that we would live through our lives. God, we see in that your utter faithfulness to your people across all generations. Every one of us is equally safe in your hands because you have promised it to us. There is none that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God, help us today, help us in these weeks to come to find it more and more natural to us to rest and rejoice in that comfort because we have been made by your word to see ourselves, our lives, our place in this world, the end of this world. We've been made by your word to see these things as you see them, which is to say we've been made to see them truly and rightly. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.